Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. Welcome to 2022. The good news about 2021, it's over. Okay, I praise God for that. But let me just tell you, 2022 is looking a little rough. So the only way you're going to make, I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you the truth. It's looking pretty awful. And uh, if you don't think so, it's because it's the new year and you're still just kind of working off what you worked in. So the, the, way, the, way, the way this year is going to work, it's going to be a little rough, but I want you to worship your way through it. And so we're going to start this year by finishing the Worship the King series. And it's how do we worship through this year? And, uh, and next week, we're gonna start Genesis. So if you wanna start reading ahead, it's a hillbilly redneck saga of epic proportions. Like if you've got a messed up family come, you're gonna feel better. You're gonna see the most messed up family you've ever seen. It's gonna be great. And, and, and what we've been looking at is how do we worship God? We, we looked week one, how, how is Jesus right now being worshiped in heaven? Then week two, how is Jesus worshiped in the Christian church? Week three, how is Jesus to be worshiped in our home, in our family, in our life? Today, we're gonna look at how do we worship God in life, especially regarding our work when we go to work and our wealth with the money that we make. And so when we think about worship, some of you may not yet be Christians or maybe you're new Christians, and it sounds like a church word. It's actually a life word, the word worship is. Everybody worships, it's not just a religious or spiritual or church issue, it's a human issue. And it is this, someone or something is your priority and center. Someone or something is what you pour your life energy into. You're gonna live roughly 27,000 days. What do you do with your time? That gives us an indication of who or what is your priority. Uh, where do you spend your money? The average American makes a few million dollars in their life. Where does that money go? Those decisions are indicative of your priorities. In addition, the average person speaks somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million words during your lifetime. Some of us, a few more. Um, and, and when it comes to how we spend our words, what are we talking about? What matters most to us? What is coming out of our heart to use the language of Jesus? What makes us happy and excited? What do we look forward to? What makes us frustrated, sad, or disappointed? All of those would be indicators of who or what is your priority and what your life energy is ultimately devoted to. And so everyone is always worshiping all the time. The only difference is who or what we worship. And so we looked at worship and we established a definition from Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. What is worship? Well, it's, it's adoration and action. Hebrews 13 says this, first regarding adoration through him, that is Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is talking about God. This is singing about God. This is praying to God, it's adoration. And then it's also action. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That includes our work and that's largely what we're going to focus on today. But adoration is declaring God, action is doing good. Adoration is up to God, action is out to others. Adoration is how we love God, action is how we love our neighbor. Adoration is largely internal in how we feel about Jesus. Um, our actions are external and it shows our love for others externally through the deeds that we do. And so what happens for most people who don't know Jesus, the two things that we tend to worship the most are work and wealth. Many people are just so devoted to their job that they are willing to make sacrifices, which is what you do when you worship. You make a sacrifice. You make a sacrifice of your time. You make a sacrifice sometimes of your marriage or your family or your time with your kids or even participating in a church. People make great sacrifices as they worship their job. We call them workaholics. 
In addition, this is why we don't turn our phones off. We don't take our days off. We bring our laptops on our vacations and Americans tend to overwork for those of us who do work. And the result is that we're trying to produce wealth. And ultimately for many people, wealth is ultimately their driving priority. What will generate the most revenue? So we're gonna look at worship regarding work and wealth. And the best way to not worship your work is to worship God with your work. And the best way to not worship your wealth is to worship God with your wealth. So I wanna talk first about work. And you tend to think of worship as something that happens in church. It also is something that happens outside of church. And most of us, we go to work. Now, when I speak of work, I'm talking about that which you're paid for and not paid for, whatever deeds that you do. So let me give you an example. How many of you are a mom with little kids, okay? Do you work? Oh yeah, yeah. For each kid is a full-time job. So if you got four kids, you got four full-time jobs. If you got a husband, you got 11 full-time jobs, okay? And so what happens is work is not just what you get paid for. You could volunteer, you could be working in a church or a ministry or coaching a kid's little league team. You could be a parent or a grandparent. Your work is all of your combined efforts and labor. It's not just what you're paid for. But when it comes to work and how we view work, it's part of something much larger uh, that's called a worldview. And a worldview, as the name would indicate, it's how you view the world. How does the world work and what's my role in it? and different cultures have different worldviews regarding work. So let me do a little bit of historical overview. In the days of the New Testament, there were two primary cultures that were influencing worldview, particularly regarding work. One was Greek, the other was Roman. So the Greek culture really gave us academics, it gave us the university, it gave us philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, we still to this day attribute a great deal of Western understanding to Greek literature and philosophy. And that was the dominant paradigm and the dominant language in the days of the New Testament. Well, the underlying view of Greek philosophy was something called dualism. That is that there's the material and there is the non-material. There is the physical and the spiritual, and the spiritual or non-material is good, and the physical or material is bad. So the whole goal was to not work with your hands, to not work a laborer's job, to not produce, but to instead live in the world of ideas and concepts. So the idealistic world was one where you would deal with art, philosophy, you would think thoughts, you would not produce goods. And so for them, the, the, the most benefited people in their culture did the least amount of labor. You would live off in some university setting, you would read and you would study and you would contemplate and you would pontificate and you would speculate. And you lived in the unseen life of the mind and you didn't produce things with your hands. That was the dominant philosophical culture in the days of the New Testament. And the dominant uh, political regime was the Roman Empire. They were the largest, longest standing, most powerful nation in the history of the world up until their day. And they would come into an area and they would conquer it and they would assimilate and subordinate the people. The result was that the Roman Empire had a lot of slaves. They would conquer you and enslave you. And if you were a Roman citizen, your goal was not to work, but to have the slaves and the servants do all the work. So literally the servants and the slaves, they were the ones to get their hands dirty and you would just sort of enjoy your posh life of luxury. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't do your own landscaping. You wouldn't clean your own pool. You wouldn't change your own oil. You wouldn't build your own house. You wouldn't cook your own meals. If you were a Roman citizen that was beneath you, you were above that. And so the servants and slaves would serve you and do the work for you. Well, these cultures, this Roman political infrastructure and this Greek philosophical substructure, they come together to form the culture of the New Testament. And what happens then is Christianity is absolutely countercultural with its view of work and of getting one's hands dirty to provide for one's family. And in the history of Christianity, since the days of the New Testament, there are two primary expressions of Christianity, Catholic and Protestant and they both have a different worldview of work. I'm gonna speak a bit negatively of the Catholic view of work. I don't hate Catholics. I was raised Catholic, I was baptized Catholic. I was actually born in a Catholic hospital. My grandmother, after my grandfather died, she became a nun. So like, I mean, I, 
if I know a few Catholics, so, and, and I was one. And within Catholicism, however, many love Jesus and will be with us forever in heaven. But one of the fatal flaws within Catholicism is that the view of the priest is that he is the holy man of God. He mediates between you and God and he becomes the leader and the highest ideal of what a spiritual person, godly person should look like and live like. And he takes vows of poverty and chastity. So the, the most respected man in the church says, I'm never going to marry. I'm not going to have any kids. I won't own any possessions. I will live at the church. And all I will do is separate myself from the world and live an isolated life of monasticism. Now, I'll be honest with you, as a young man, this is one of the reasons I left the Catholic Church. I, I looked at that guy and I was like, those are all my not goals. <laughs> my goal is not to live at the church. My, that is my first goal. My next goal is not to die a virgin with no children or possessions. In fact, those are all my not goals. And I remember telling my folks um, when I was little, I was like, I'm not going to church anymore. Like, well, I was like, I don't wanna be that guy. Like my whole goal is to be not that guy. I, I wanna have a wife, I wanna have kids, I wanna generate income, I wanna hand it off generationally, and I want my kids to love and serve the Lord, and I want them to inherit not only physical, but spiritual treasures to hand off for generations. Legacy means a lot to me. And so within Catholicism, you would see the world in terms of sacred and secular. And the world and work, that's all secular. The church, that's all sacred. And so they have no understanding of God calling you into work or labor apart from ministry. So unless you were gonna be a nun or a priest or a monk or a professor, you didn't have a calling on your life. That was not unto the Lord, that was worldly. That was not sacred. Well, all of this changes around the time of the Protestant Reformation. And it largely happens around a monk who took vows of celibacy and poverty. His name was Martin Luther. He was a Bible teacher, but he was not a Christian. The point is this, you can know the scriptures, but still not know the Lord. This is the case with Satan and demons. They know the scriptures, but they don't know the Lord, not personally, not relationally. Martin Luther thought, you know, I will serve the Lord by taking these vows of withdrawing from public life, not working a job, living at the church, being poor, not marrying or having children, not leaving any inheritance when I depart this planet. And then he met Jesus studying the book of Romans, which we studied last year. And he suddenly had a profound series of insights that largely contribute to what we would now call the Protestant Reformation, and we are a Protestant church. And his insights revolutionized not just our view of the gospel and the church, that is we are saved by Jesus Christ alone, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He also revolutionized family and work. And so when it came to family, he ended up marrying. He had taken vows of celibacy and he married a nun. Now, if you're gonna go, go big. And so this is going big. Uh, she was in a convent and wrote him a letter. And so he jailbreaked her on Easter and ended up marrying her. Okay, now this is a great story because the German peasants thought that the Antichrist would be born of the illicit union of a monk and a nun. And so when they found that she was pregnant, they're expecting Halloween every day. They're expecting the bride of Chucky. I mean, here, they're waiting for worst case scenario. What made it even cooler, she was a renowned, I shouldn't tell you this, but you know, we probably won't put this one on the internet. But what was funny about this, she was also a certified brewer. So you marry a brewing nun drink her beer and have babies with her. What, I'm so glad they didn't have Twitter. This would have been a conversation. <laughs> so then they have a bunch of children and they revolutionize family. And they say, you know what? God calls us to not only jobs, but to relationships and marriage is sacred and children are a gift. And it revolutionizes what it means to be a Christian family. He also revolutionized our concept of work through his study of the Bible. And that is that God doesn't just call people into ministry, he calls all of his people. 
And so some people will be like, oh, I, I'm not called into ministry. If you're a plumber, your calling is to minister to others by fixing their pipes. If you're a mechanic, your calling is to minister to others by keeping their car on the road. If you're an engineer, your calling is to love and serve others by creating buildings that don't fall, fall down on people who occupy them. If you are a doctor, your calling is to help people with physical wellness. If you're a psychologist, your calling is to help people with emotional wellness. That all of God's children are called. And some of us are called to work for the church. Most of us are called to work in the world. And all of those callings are divine and it's all ministry if it's done unto the Lord. And so ultimately he had this divine understanding from God's word that redefined work. I'll give you a few quotes from Luther. He says, your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessing on you. He goes on to say, praise of work should be inscribed on all tools on the forehead and faces that sweat from toiling. And he goes on to say, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. Some people will say, well, you know, you don't need to work to go to heaven. You don't. Jesus does all the work for us to go to heaven. When we as Christians work, it's not to earn our salvation, it's to worship our savior. So work for us is worship. And what he's saying is this, when we work, we are loving our neighbor because we get to be the means of God's grace. I'll give you an example. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. You say, well, how does that prayer get answered? Well, somewhere a farmer grows grain and then he harvests it. And then he sells it to somebody who owns a mill and they grind it. And then they sell that to a baker who bakes the bread. And then we eat the bread and that's how we get our daily bread. These people were part of the means of God's grace to provide for our needs. And what he's saying is that every step of that journey is something sacred if it's done unto the Lord. And if it's done as an act of worship to the Lord, it's the way that we love our neighbor. And so the, the big idea is this, your job, your work is your calling, your calling. Uh, the, the, the word vocation is a Latin word, it means calling. So right now, if you're a student at a university, right now your work is to study, that is your calling for this season. If you are a parent with a young child, then parenting that child is God's calling and vocation for this season. If you are an electrician right now, your calling and vocation from God is to be an electrician. And when you do it, you're doing it unto the Lord out of worship to him and love to others. And the truth is our world could use some people who do their job. Amen? I don't know if you've seen this, Americans aren't working. And it's very hard to be an employer right now. It's very hard to find anybody who will show up and keep showing up and actually do the job. This is where Protestantism had with it this work ethic and this view of family. That church is where we come to learn God's word. Family is vital, sacred, and important. We're thinking in terms of legacy and generational implications. And work is sacred unto the Lord as an act of worship. Wherever this Bible teaching and the Protestant Reformation went, there was an increase in economic and social upward mobility. In most cultures, there are castes and classes, meaning you're born into this caste or class and it is a fixed place that is immovable. So let's say you're a Hindu in India, I've been there. You're born into a caste. There is no upward mobility. You can't generate more revenue. You can't increase your social status. The same was true in the days of the New Testament. But wherever Protestant Christianity and Bible teaching went, people would generate more wealth and they would be able to move upwardly socially because they had upward mobility. And let me say this, the two best ways to increase wealth are number one, work and steward that wealth according to God's principles. And two, don't get divorced and hand it to your children. Those simple biblical principles build generational wealth and upward mobility. And so what happened is wherever Christianity and Bible teaching and, and Protestant theology spread with the Reformation, 
there was economic change and there were dynamics at play in the workforce that altered the economy. This led to a renowned sociologist named Max Weber. And he came along and he did a study and he published a book in 1904 called The Protestant Ethic and Spirit of Capitalism. And he studied culture and upward mobility socially and economically. And he came up with this phrase, the Protestant work ethic. And what he determined was wherever Protestantism goes with the Protestant work ethic, there is economic flourishing and capitalism flourishes wherever God's people flourish. This is because during the Protestant Reformation, Christians live counterculturally in the ancient world. The goal was to be a noble class and to raise children who had servants. And with Protestants, we started giving our children chores because they needed to learn how to work. See, we live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and there is still this nobility mindset. If I could just get the right people to serve my kids, they would be wonderful adults. If I could get the right school, the right teacher, the right youth pastor, the right kids ministry, the right coach, the right tutor, if I could just get the right servants to serve my child, they would grow up to be an incredible adult. The truth is the only way you raise a human being is by teaching them to work and to serve others. And so the Protestants embrace this because we'll get into this in a moment. Jesus came to the earth as a poor kid who had chores and he grew up and did really well. So how do you raise a child? We raise a child like Mary and Joseph did. You teach them how to serve others and to work hard as an act of worship unto the Lord from the earliest days. And the point is this, as Christianity is waning, so is our work ethic. So is our economic and social mobility. And so is our entrepreneurialism. But what I'm telling you is this, this is a great opportunity for God's people to do things God's way because the other way doesn't work. So I wanna look at what the scriptures have to say. How do we worship God with our work? How do we do that? So we'll start in the book of Genesis and we'll begin this great book of the Bible next week. But in Genesis one and two, we meet God. And the first thing we learn is God works. God works for six days. And then he takes a seventh day off and he rests and he establishes for us a seven day week, work hard for six days and then rest well on the seventh day. Well, some people ask, well, how do you be godly? Well, you be like God. You do what God does. God works. Let me say this, you can't be godly if you don't work. This cultural sense of entitlement, and and, and it's catastrophic. It literally is, if you can fog a mirror, you're just born with certain entitlements. Well, we should have basic income and healthcare should be free and college should be free. And I should just sit on the couch and play video games and download porn and order food and then vote for people to send me checks. You don't even need to believe in Jesus to know that doesn't work. You just need to believe in math. If nobody's working and everybody's spending, we get something called debt slash America. And so God works. So God's people should work. And then what God does, he makes one human being. He starts with our first father, Adam, in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work. Single guys, just a little insight here. He got a job before a wife. Okay, just write that down. (laughs) Adam doesn't have a wife yet, but he's got a job. Let me just tell you this. This, This is a profound generational insight that you need to help me get the word out about. Right? He had a job and then a wife. And this is, a, this, is, this is the preferred sequence. And there's a lot of guys right now, like they're, they're, they're literally watching this sermon in their pajamas at their mom's house in their 30s, wondering why a nice girl hasn't shown up. It's because there are no women looking for a guy who's good at wearing his pajamas at his mom's house. There are zero, there are zero women. And if there is a woman, she needs help, right? She needs... <laughs> Like she, she's got an addiction, she needs help. She's lost reality. And what we see here is that work is before sin enters the world and before the fall. So here, Adam is a perfect being in a perfect environment and he's given a job to do. The point is this, you and I were made to work. And when we don't work, 
we get into a lot of trouble. This is particularly true of young men. And I believe that our culture is in the process of destroying an entire generation of young men. I always say that young men are like a truck. They drive straighter with a load. You need a load of responsibility on a guy to straighten him out. And so what God does before he gives them a wife and kids, he gives them a job. He's like, here, you need some responsibilities. And God tells him, I'm working, you work, you go to work with me and I'm working with you and I'm working through you. And so what God does is God assigns to humanity work. Now, the reason that work is frustrating is we then see in Genesis chapter three, that when we sin, everything under our dominion is affected by the curse and it's working against us. So all the work we're trying to do, the things are always working against us. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So what happens is the curse enters the world because of our sin. And God says, now you're gonna work, but everything is gonna treat you like you treat me. You fight me every inch, everything's gonna fight you every inch. How many of you have realized that your work is cursed? Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to do something, just anything? Is it hard? Yes. Does it take longer than it should? Always. Does it cost more than you budgeted? For sure. I mean, and once you get it done, does it break? Yes, okay. If you, like, if you haven't learned this yet, just have a child, right? Like, they're gonna throw up as soon as you put them in the car seat. It just triggers this. Like, you're like, finally, we made it out of the house. Nope, we're going back in. This is what happens. You finally get your home improvement project done and then an appliance breaks or the roof leaks. You're at work, you finally get your inbox emptied and you're getting out of your chair to go home and you get a notification that there's more work to do. That the world we live in is cursed. That everything is working against us. The result is three things. Number one, many people just try to avoid work. Just try to avoid it. How could I do as little as possible and still breathe? That's sort of the goal. And now we've made this into good citizenship. Just sit there and collect your checks. Do you know that right now, the average debt per American is almost $90,000. That went up last year about $10,000. Who knows what it'll go up again this year. But many people have decided work is very hard, therefore I'm going to avoid it. But somehow I still need revenue to live. And so I need the money fairy to produce. The second thing that happens because work is cursed, some people try and find a shortcut. There's always somebody trying to find a short, there's gotta be an easier way to make a buck. There's gotta be an easier way to get the job done. Is there? No, there's not. Any get rich quick scheme is a get poor quick scheme. Any shortcut is a long route. The way you get a marriage, a family, a business, an income stream, a financial portfolio, a real estate investment, you're gonna have to work at it and it's gonna take some time. There is no immediate solution. You can't, you, you can microwave your lunch, but not your life. Right? There's no shortcut. Some people have asked, I mean, when we started this church, our family showed up and just worked. Demo and work and work and work and work. And I got five kids and we all worked. People are like, how'd you, you work? I, I don't know any shortcut. There is no shortcut to work. And the third thing that happens because of the curse is people make excuses rather than plans. And in a fallen, broken, cursed world, there is always an excuse why the job was not done. You have two choices. You can make excuses on why it didn't get done or make plans to get it done. And you need to know that we have from top to bottom a global crisis in leadership right now. Everybody's making excuses, nobody's making plans. Why, well, we can't, here's why. Okay, well, what are we gonna do? Oh, nothing, we're, we're just gonna wait. We've been waiting two years. Two, like some of you have eaten two birthday cakes waiting for things to figure themselves out. 
And let me say this, that if you're just waiting for the world to figure itself out, I'm telling you this, the world is cursed. So you need to be blessed. The world is gonna make excuses, so you gotta make plans. I saw this, churches shut down. I'm like, okay, businesses shut down. It's like, okay, well, how long are we shut down for? Like, we don't know. Okay, well, when do we know we can go back to normal? We don't know. Okay, well, how do we figure this out? They're like, we'll just wait for somebody who is elected to tell us. Like, (laughs) that's adorable, okay? (laughs) That's adorable. Because the point is right now, your business needs a plan, your family needs a plan, your job needs a plan, our church needs a plan. You have to have leadership. You can't just wait for everything to be okay because in a cursed fallen world, it's never okay. And there's always an excuse. There's always, and let me say this, we are destroying an entire generation by giving them a series of excuses to not work, to not plan, to not prepare, to not take responsibility and to not execute on anything that would look like an adult expectation. We just are. We've got a whole generation of young men right now who are being told, you know, a good citizen sits on the couch and just waits until someday everything works that day is not coming. There has to be among God's people a sense of, we need to get some things done. We need to make progress. We need to accomplish our tasks. We worship God and we can't worship God unless we work and produce. Now, Christ and Christianity all together revolutionized work. So let me, let me go to Jesus, Matthew thirteen fifty five. They say, is this not Jesus, the carpenter's son? Here's what's really interesting. Our God comes into human history. His name is Jesus. Does he come to a rich family or poor family? Poor family. Does he come to nobility where the servants serve him? Or does he come to a peasant family where he has to serve? Has to serve. So God, imagine this, just put it in modern terms. Just just let your brain, just entertain this thought. Right? You, let's say you got a pool at your house. So there's a guy who comes every week, cleans your pool. You go out, you're like, what's your name? Jesus, what are you doing cleaning my pool? Well, I'm here to serve. Well, don't you have better things to do? Well, somebody's got to clean the pool. You, you go home, there's a landscaper with a leaf blower and his name is Jesus. And you're like, what are you doing here? He's like, well, you know, the place looks terrible. We had a storm. I figured somebody had to clean the mess up. You have nothing, you have, you're God. You got nothing else to do today. He's like, that's what he's doing. <laughs> you pull in to get your oil changed. You're like, hey, you look familiar. Yeah, you, do you want me to do the wiper blades and the filter? Uh, I don't know. Does it need to be done? Well, I am Jesus. I'll tell you the truth. I'm not gonna lie to you. <laughs> Just to squeeze another 27 bucks out of you. you know? uh, <laughs> oh, what are you doing changing my oil? See, this is, this is why people miss Jesus. They're like, certainly God wouldn't be humble and he wouldn't work a job. And if he was gonna work a job, he'd work a big job, not a little job. He'd be in the corner office, not with a mop. That's our Jesus. His dad was a carpenter. In the Roman empire, that's what peasants, slaves and servants did. They worked with their hands and they got their hands dirty and they got calluses. They're like, God took a blue collar job? Yeah. Well, if work isn't beneath Jesus, it's not beneath us. And if something was not too menial for him, it shouldn't be too menial for us. Think of it this way. In, in the Roman culture, they would travel along Roman roads and it was something called Pax Romana, the Roman peace. What held the Roman empire together was a series of road systems, but not like, not like our lovely paved interstates, dirt roads that people and animals would travel on and they were not tended to. So think of all the animals walking through the dirt and then it rains and now you got mud and it's a situation. You're walking with open-toed sandals what are your feet like? They're nasty. How many of you don't like feet? Okay. We're Americans. We do shoes and socks, like two levels of protection from feet. 
Like we're, we're scared of feet. Like if the, if the foot gets out of the shoe, I still want the sock as a backup plan. Like we're that terrified of feet. Feet are nasty, right? Feet are nasty. So what would happen is when you entered into someone's home and you had all this under your toenails and between your toes, to be a good host, they would clean your feet. But that job was always assigned to the lowest ranking slave. The lowest status person in the house would clean the feet of the guests. There's, a, there's an occasion in the Bible where Jesus and the disciples, they show up at someone's home and nobody washes the feet. They're all thinking, that's a job that I'm above and it's beneath me. Who gets down and washes the feet? Jesus. Je God. God, God washes the feet and he washes the feet of Judas Iscariot, his betrayer. He's willing to work and serve. No one and nothing is beneath him. I'll give you another verse, Luke 22, 40, 24 through 28, a dispute also arose among them. So the disciples are having an argument as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is a silly conversation, right? You got Larry, Curly, Moe, and God. They're like, oh, I wonder which one of us is the best. I don't know, maybe the guy who water skis without a boat. No, nope. it seems like the obvious choice, but somehow they overlook it. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. We rule, you serve, we command, you work but not so with you, rather the leader is as one who serves. And he says, I am among you as one who serves. Here's what Jesus says. I, uh, I'm a servant who works. Jesus says this a lot. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the defining difference between Jesus Christ and other religions. Other religions, the basic gist of all religions is that something has gone wrong between us and God. And somebody needs to work to fix that problem. That's the general agreement. The difference is who does the work? In all other religions, you do the work. Your good deeds outperform your bad deeds. You reincarnate, you pay off your karmic debt. You got a lot of work to do. In Christianity, Jesus does all the work of salvation. He serves us. He lives the perfect life. He dies the substitutionary death. He rises to conquer Satan's sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, and to give salvation as a gift that he worked for and we don't. This is why the Bible calls that grace. Jesus did all the work for you and I to be saved. His whole life on earth was one of work. And he says on the cross, it is finished, which means all the work is done and we just trust in him. So think of it in this way, Jesus' whole life is of working to serve. And he redefines what work is and why work is done. But let me ask you this, Jesus' ministry, for those of you who know the storyline of the Bible, so let's say Jesus lived around 33 years before he died, rose, returned to heaven, around 33 years. How many years was he in ministry preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, all the public ministry. How many years? About three, which means the first 30 years he was working a job. As a kid, he's going to work with his dad. As a little kid, he would have been fetching water from the well with his mom. I've been to the well, it's still there. Been to his hometown. Jesus came from a poor peasant family. As a kid, he had chores and jobs. And when he got big enough, he would help his dad with a carpentry business. 90% plus of Jesus' life was spent working a job. And the point is this, he wasn't junior varsity and then varsity. He wasn't not worshiping and then worshiping. He wasn't not doing ministry and then doing ministry. His whole life is varsity. His whole life is worship. His whole life is ministry. For a season, he was called to be a son who submitted to his parents and did his chores. For a season, he was called to do carpentry alongside of his father. And for a season, he was called to preach and teach. And all of that was his calling. You are called of God 
And what you are doing is important. It breaks my heart sometimes when people say things like, oh, I just wish I was called to ministry. First thing I say is, actually you don't. Uh, I've been in ministry and it's, it's, it's every day is like a head-on collision with no airbags. I mean, it's a situation. And furthermore, you have a calling and it's just figuring out what has God called me to? What is my role? What are my gifts? What has what, what God designed me to contribute to the well-being of others? And then do that unto the Lord and it becomes worship for you. So let me say this, I'm gonna share with you now a verse that uh, if you're in your 20s, um, if you're even moderately woke, if, um, if you moved here from California, um, your brain is gonna explode. So put your phone down and hold your chair. Here we go. I'm just gonna read 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 11. If anyone is not willing to work. work. So be like, what does that mean in the Greek, Pastor Mark? Uh, work, that's what it means in the Greek. <laughs> Let him not do you see a correlation between working and eating? Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. What he's saying is if you wanna eat, you need to work. See, this is the opposite of entitlement. Worship is the opposite of entitlement. Even in the Old Testament, when people were poor and given provision, they had to go to the field and glean from the margins of the field. They didn't just stay home and cash their check. They went and did something and worked. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. What he says is there are two kinds of people, people who are busy and people who are busy bodies. People who are busy are working, people who are busy bodies, their work is critiquing the people who are working. They don't do anything, they just have opinions about people who are doing things. True or false, this is still a problem. This was before the internet. The internet is the Greek word for busybody. The internet exists to busy, oh, did you, did, you, did you see where they're, did you see what they got? Did you hear what they do? Do you know? And you're like, no, I'm, I'm busy. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. I'm too busy doing. I don't, I, I don't know what's happening. I got my own stuff to do. I got recently somebody was like, do you hear what they said about you on Twitter? No, Twitter's not a real place. And I'm not gonna argue with chubby bunny one, two, three. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna snuggle with grace. I, that's what I, like if I got a choice, I'm not flipping a coin or even praying about it. I'm putting my phone down, you know, and I'm gonna hold my wife's hand. That's what I'm doing. You can go on YouTube, spend your whole day arguing with a bunch of people or do something. And this is the world we live in. Some people are busy and some people are busy bodies. You know, I, I, at the end of the day, you should be so busy, you don't have time to busybody. Like I would critique them, I just had, I, I, I'm so busy critiquing myself. I, I would tell you all the things that they need to work on, but I'm so busy working on my stuff, I don't even have time to complain about what they're not doing. See, we live in this world where everyone gets to be a critic and nobody gets to do anything, but we feel like we're mature because we criticize people who are doing things. What he says is this, stay busy. And let me, let me just say this, if you are a young man, this is a historic opportunity because no one is working, no one is busy. Right now, it is so hard to find a decent employee. And right now, so many young men are just wasting their 20s. They are not investing, they're wasting. I was at the grocery store the other day. I saw multiple young men in pajamas. I was like, when did pants be like, too much? I just, I, this, I just don't have it. <laughs> Sir, there, there is no woman like, I'm at the grocery store looking for the guy with the best pajamas. That's what I'm, there, there's no, like I told him last night, and if she is there, she's in the alcohol section, that's not your girl, right? Because like, right now, here's what's happening. Hey, 20-something guy, what are you good? I'm good at porn, I'm good at video games, I'm good at being vaccinated, and I'm good at eating my mom's food. How much do I get paid for that? Like, yeah, that's not a career. That's a joke. 
right? And if you're on the internet, feel free to comment. All you busybodies, all you busybodies, I'm just here to help, right? I mean, but just, just, just for a moment, here 10 years into the future, and the guy who literally is just spending a lot of time at home in his pajamas is then supposed to lead a family or a church or a ministry or a company. It's, it's catastrophic. So what I'm telling you is this, it's good to get busy. And the earlier you get started, the further ahead you are. This is where it is a strategic opportunity for God's people with a Protestant work ethic. Here's what I'm telling you, if you're a young guy, just get up by the crack of lunch. Just get up by the crack of lunch. <laughs> put some pants on, leave the house and try. Those four things will change your legacy because the other guys are not doing it. What do you need to do to stay busy? What work has God for you to do? And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is worship. Doing something to the glory of God is the worship of God. Whatever you do, and this can be volunteering. This can be your employment. And what he's talking about here is, you're not just doing it for the paycheck, you're doing it for the Lord. You're not doing it for the boss, you're doing it for the Lord. You're not doing it for the praise, you're doing it for the Lord, which means you're going to do it with excellence. There is a catastrophic failure in excellence in the workplace right now. How many of you have tried to get customer service? <laughs> I, I don't think you can lose your salvation, but if you can, it would be because of something that happened with customer service. <laughs> I think the most wicked thoughts dealing with customer service. I'm not a robot, I'm not a robot, I'm not a robot. But you are, so why are we doing this? <laughs> and how many of you really appreciate excellence? Something, because here's the big idea. We appreciate excellence because we were made for perfection. Ever since the curse came, we can't get to perfection, but excellence is as close as we can get. There's something about someone who actually cares and does an incredible job. And I don't care what it is, we just appreciate excellence. And. So recently, Grace and I went to a new restaurant and it was incredible. Like when Jesus comes back, he may take this restaurant to heaven. It was that good. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, like this is it. And I, I remember just thinking to myself, somebody in that kitchen cares. Every dish was seasoned. It was intentional. It was thoughtful. It was methodical. And I just thought that was incredible. That, that was excellence. I love walking into an environment where it's architected well. I love watching all those shows where they take something broken and they restore it. I just, anything. My wife's always like, why are you watching all these crazy shows? I'm like, it was broken, it got restored. That's my whole life story. I was broken and Jesus is in the process of restoring me. So I like watching stuff get restored, gives me hope. I, if there's an old car, I wanna see it when it, like, that's amazing. There's an old house, they get it all redone, that's incredible. I just like seeing people who are good at what they do, do it. And part of that is doing it all to the glory of God. As God's people, it should be, we want to be good at what we do because of the greatness of our God. And we want him to be glorified through the excellence of what we work toward and for. And when this happens, it raises the standard for others because what tends to happen in the world, friends, everybody's just lazy and trying to get by and make an excuse and take shortcuts and things just kind of deteriorate. And then somebody rises above and says, I'm gonna do an excellent job. Then everybody starts to elevate their expectations. And, and I'm telling you right now, our culture has never perhaps needed this more than right now. Everywhere you go, it's pretty terrible. Nothing is awesome. And, and everybody's just kind of gotten used to it and okay with it. Anywhere you go, it's just kind of mediocre. And that's the new normal. And what he says is, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And here's the big verse that really summarizes the Protestant work ethic, Colossians 3. He says this, whatever you do, 
plumber, electrician, mom, school teacher, soccer coach, landscaper, pool cleaner, CEO, Fortune 500, president, whatever you do, work hard. What that means is work hard. Not just show up, but work hard as for the Lord. Above your boss is your Lord. You're not just working for your boss, you're working for your Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving who? The Lord Christ. As a Christian, it is when I go to work, it is worship of him and witness to them. It is worship to him, I wanna do this for you, Lord, and witness to them. I'm doing the best job I can so that you would see the greatness of the God that I serve. And what he says is for those who work for the Lord and work wholeheartedly, they get an inheritance. And what an employer will do, they will incentivize an employee. So you get benefits or you get a bonus or maybe you're paid on commission, there's incentivizing. God incentivizes us to work through an inheritance. This is what's crazy. You will work in heaven. Heaven is you die, you rise, Jesus returns, lifts the curse, everything goes back to his original divine design of Genesis one and two, and you and I will be given jobs. This life is an internship that qualifies us for our eternal job. And that is part of the inheritance. And the inheritance that he speaks of here, it is threefold. First and foremost, it is internal. How many of you, you work a good, long, hard day, you do your best, you get the job done, you pour yourself out, and something in your heart, you're just like, that felt good. Felt good to produce, help some people, get some stuff done. I, I got a reason to get up in the morning. And everybody needs to have a reason to get up in the morning. Sometimes these rewards are external. If you will show up, if you will do your job, if you will operate according to biblical principles, odds are you're gonna get promoted at work. We have a lot of employers here at the church and what they are all saying is, we can't find employees and we can't find good ones. They show up for a couple of days, disappear. Show up late, don't do their job. It's hard to find anybody that you can count and depend on. This is a crisis for our country, but it's an opportunity for God's children to be those people. And as you see people that you're like, I can count on them. They're gonna show up, they're gonna be sober. Like they're gonna come back. They're not gonna steal. Uh, you're probably going to get external rewards, meaning you're probably gonna get promoted. And then there are eternal rewards. You can't take your inheritance with you, but Jesus says to store up your treasures in heaven. That your Lord is paying attention to all of your work and there is an inheritance that awaits you. And he talks about this when you die and stand before him. And he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? That ultimately the reward comes from the Lord. Now, I'll give you a, an illustration of how this works in my life. So I grew up in a hardworking blue collar family. Some of you know my story. My dad was a construction worker, union drywaller. I mean, tool belt, swinging a hammer, hanging sheetrock for a long time till he broke his back to feed five kids. So I come from a working class, blue collar, hardworking home. We all got our work ethic from my mom and dad. They worked very, very hard. I was the first man in my family to ever go to college. And I went on an academic and leadership scholarship. And I worked my way through college. In addition to college, I worked summer jobs and I worked during the school year. I worked and went to school full time. I got saved, became a Christian my freshman year in college, reading the Bible that my now wife, Grace, gave me. So now I'm a Christian. And I go to apply for a, some, one of my summer jobs and I applied to work at the Marriott. So I'm like 19, 20, something like a 21, young kid, college kid. And I go in for the interview and it was basically a threefold job. You're gonna be a shuttle driver. You gotta pick up people from the airport every 15 minutes. Uh, you're gonna be um, schlepping bags. That's what you're gonna be doing. You're gonna be carrying everybody's luggage. And you're gonna be kind of a concierge booking dinner or town car or cruises or whatever the people need. So those are your three jobs. You're kind of bellhop, shuttle driver, concierge. So I'm in the interview with an older guy who had been in this job and he was the manager and been there for a long time. And he says, so what do you study in college? I said, well, I study speech. He said, what do you hope to do with that? I said, well, I, I, I'm a new Christian. I became a Christian 
and, uh, and I feel like God's called me to preach the Bible, so I'm gonna get a speech degree, then I hope to get a Bible degree as a master's degree. He's like, oh, you're a Christian. I was like, yeah. He's like, I am too. I was like, oh, great, cool. I, I told him my testimony, how I became a Christian. He told me his testimony, great guy. And he said, uh, he said I'd like to hire you, but first I need to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He said, are you gonna work like a Christian? My first thought was, I don't even know what that means. I just got saved. Like I'm, I'm still smoldering a bit. Like I just got saved. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I was like, I, I don't know. I said, I'd like, you, how do you work as a Christian? He took me to Colossians 3. He said, you don't work for me and you don't work for the Marriott. You work for the Lord Jesus. What he said is, if you're gonna say you're a Christian, you need to work as a Christian. He said, I've heard some people who say they're Christians, but they don't work like Christians and they're a bad witness because most of the people who work here are not Christians. And if you say you're a Christian and you're a bad employee, that's a bad reflection on Jesus. I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. He took me to Colossians 3. And he said, so I said, so practically, what does this mean? He said, you show up early, you're never late. If you have something that you're doing and your shift ends, you clock out, you come back, you finish your task as a volunteer. You always look for things to do. If you've got downtime, you wash the van, you vacuum the van, you organize the luggage closet, you take out the trash. If you run out of things to do, you start asking other departmental managers, what can I do to help? You don't stop moving. He said, when somebody shows up in a nice car or a beater car, you treat them the same, you treat them well. If somebody's got old shoes or new shoes or a nice watch or a cheap watch, you treat them the same. If somebody stiffs you and they don't tip you, you smile and love them. If somebody pulls up in front of the hotel and they're not even staying here and they need to use the restroom or they need directions or they need help or, or, or they need reservations, you serve them because you serve the Lord Christ. He laid it all out. I was like, yes, sir. I will work as a Christian, as a Christian. And he hired another guy who is also a college student and was a new Christian gave him the same speech. And there was a dead day, one of those boring days that drags on, there's nothing happening. So there's the bell stand in the, in the lobby. This new Christian guy pulls out his Bible and starts reading it. And the old guy walks over, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm reading God's word. He's like, the Marriott does not pay you to read the Bible. You put the Bible away. He's like, but isn't it good to read the Bible? Yeah, but not at work. That's not the work you're being paid for. He said, if you wanna read your Bible, read your Bible at home, read your Bible in the car before work, read your Bible during your break in the break room. That's your time. And I watched him and this is what he did. He wasn't a religious guy. He was actually a really great guy. But during lunch in the break room, he would read a book or he'd bring out his Bible and he'd read it, but not on company time. And I'll never forget, there was one time that he was reading his Bible, having lunch and one of the housekeepers had just had a miscarriage, young woman. She's having a really hard time. She came over, she sat with him. She's like, uh, can I ask you some questions? And she's like, yeah. She's like, do you, do you know the Bible? He's like, well, I, I'm a Christian, I, I know some of it. She's like, I, I just miscarried a baby. She's very emotional. She's like, what do you think happened to my baby? Do you think, do you think babies can go to heaven? And he, he's like, here, let me tell you about Jesus. He became a baby. The kingdom of God is made for the children. Um, God can save from the womb. And he gave, he's like, can I pray for you? And he prayed for her. She got very emotional. And he looked at her, he's like, tomorrow, could I bring you a Bible? She's like, yeah, I'd like that. And he said, great. And why don't you read it? And then anytime you have questions, I'd like to answer those for you. The guy was doing ministry, but he wasn't doing it on company time. And people saw how we worked. And as a result, they wanted to talk to him about other things because they could see he was a person of character and consistency. If you're gonna say you're a Christian, you need to work as a Christian. And most of us, we work to generate wealth. This will be my final point. The question is the best way to not worship your work is to worship God in your work. And the best way to worship the wealth that you produce from your work is to worship God with your wealth. So I wanna close with this. Uh, Jesus says this, Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. This is worship. For either he will hate one, love the other, devoted one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When it comes to life and work and money and revenue, there's no problem with making a profit, but there's always gonna be a point where you can make more money if you have less character. You can make more money if you have less character. And at those moments you say, no, 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 
character over money because I can't worship God and money. If I worship money, I will trade my income for my character. Instead, I'm going to try and retain my character out of love for my Lord and I'll trust him to provide for my daily bread. There's always gonna be a time in your life, there's nothing wrong with making money and generating wealth, nothing whatsoever. But there is a point where you're like, ah, I can't do this and still be a good Christian. It goes on to say in Philippians 4, Paul says, I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied having received the gifts, worship language, you sent a fragrant offering. So their financial giving is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Worship includes our work and our wealth. It's giving and making sacrifices. In the Old Testament, you give an animal. In the New Testament, you give whatever your economic income stream is in the culture you find yourself in. And it's giving. And here's the great blessing. I'll give you this quote in Acts 20, verse 35. Jesus is quoted as saying, it is more blessed to give than receive. Is that still true? Yes. See, this is how good God is. We live in a culture that tells you it is more blessed to receive than to give. We have people who are saying, I'm not going to work. And then I'm going to reach a point in my life where I don't have anything. And then I'm gonna say that I'm a victim. So I'm gonna vote for people to take from people who are going to work and give it to me. And we call it justice and it's injustice. And I know that's controversial, but that's my job is to tell the truth. And you and I, we are to realize that our God is a giver. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. And giving is a blessing. We don't give to get a blessing. Giving is the blessing. How many of you just experienced this at Christmas? There's somebody you loved, you got them something, you gave it to them, you saw them open it and enjoy it, and they were blessed and you were blessed. See, this is how gracious God is. When we worship with our work and we worship with our wealth, everyone is blessed because it is more blessed to give than receive. Jesus talks about wealth, finances, and possessions in the term of worship in 25% of his teaching. There are 800 texts in the Old and New Testament on this. Let me just conclude. It's the first week into the year. The accounting firm is doing the uh, totals from last year, but Wallet Hub and Forbes both have named Arizona the least charitable state in America. The least charitable state in America. And you are one of the most generous churches I've ever seen. You guys are a complete outlier phenomenon. See, people are like, I hate it when the pastor talks about money. No, you don't. You hate it when he tells you you're not good with it. Uh, when he tells you you're good with it, you don't mind hearing about money. <laughs> Here's what I wanna tell you. We looked at the number of households who attend our church and the number of households who give to our church and it's about the same. Here's what I'm telling you. Pretty much everyone here gives. I, 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 this, is, this would be the great time for me to you know, put the screws to you and have big security guards with you know, chip scanners on the way out. And um, I got, you, guys are, you guys are incredible. You, you work and you give. You're a generous church family. I, I, I wish I had something to go, you guys gotta work on this. Like, you guys gotta work on, keep doing what you're doing. You, you are an incredible people. I mean, we are so grateful for you. This is a beautiful church family. We're not perfect, but beautiful to be sure. And the reason we can be so generous is because you have been incredibly generous. Um, we, we were seeking to raise some additional money to help missionaries and church planners and the worship department at last month. And you guys gave way above and beyond what we even asked or prayed for. Last year, you guys gave way above what we asked or prayed for. It's why we could do the cafe and the studio and more parties and give away so many Bibles and, and, and love so many people and give away study guides and help people learn God's word and watch kids for date nights and throw parties. I mean, you have been incredible. You are countercultural. You are unique. And, and you guys need to know, if you've been here, I'm not a flatterer, amen? Like, like, if I tell you you're doing great, you're doing really great. And I just wanna close just by giving you some encouragement 
that things in the world may really be bad, but things among God's people could be really great and a great opportunity to live a countercultural life of worship. And I'll close with this. We just had our Christmas season and we had a month of parties. Some people are like, why do you throw parties? To practice for heaven. We believe that heaven is a party that's free and everybody there likes it. So we like to throw fun parties to practice for heaven. Now there's always some busybody on the internet who critiques. Like we threw a bunch of parties in December. That's people like, I sure hope you didn't use the Lord's money. Of course we did. It's the Lord's birthday. And the Lord told us to spend his money and throw a party. So take it up with the Lord. You know, I don't, <laughs> we had, so we had thousands of people come on campus and, and it, they were kind of shocked and disoriented because the first question they'd ask is how, how much? How much is the hot chocolate? It's free. So they drank hundreds of gallons. <laughs> so they're all diabetics, pray for them, you know? Um, how, how much to go on the rides and the slides? It's, it's free, it's free. Hey, do you need a Bible? Well, how much is the Bible? It's free. So we come they're like, how can you give all this away? We can't, our people are generous. I talked to a single mom and uh, she actually told me to thank you. Uh, she just was in the middle of a divorce. She's got a bunch of little kids. She's in a hard season. She's not a Christian. Um, she was actually in the neighborhood, saw the party and her kids are like, mom, let's go there. <laughs> so they pull over. She gets out and she's like, I was wondering how much it was gonna cost. She said, it was all free. I said, yeah, it's all free. She said, why is that? I said, there's a God who loves you. His name is Jesus Christ and we're celebrating his birthday. And I said, and that God in the Bible, he's also a father to the fatherless. I said, so, you know, here's money for your kids. Here's, you know, Bible, here's hot cocoa, here's a slide, make memories. She said, I was really wanting my kids to have a fun holiday memory. She said, but I can't afford it. And I didn't think you could get it at the church. It's like, well, that's the first place that you should get grace is at the church. And she, uh, she looked at me and she said, uh, she said, do you, do you guys have services? She's never been to the church, only to the party. I was like, yeah, every week. She's like, can I come? No. <laughs> we gotta draw the line somewhere. So I said, yeah, we'd love to have you and your family. We have kids ministry. We'll play with your kids and pray with your kids. We'd love to have you. We have women's ministry. We have cares ministry. We'd like to surround you with loving support where we'd like to be helpful to your family because we love you. And she started crying. She's like, thank you. I was like, I'll, I'll tell our people thank you because they're the ones who made this possible. So thank you. Thank you. All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for an opportunity to teach. And Jesus, we know that you're worshiped in heaven. We thank you that we get to worship you in church. I pray that we would worship you at home. And God, I pray that this year especially, as we're on the precipice of the beginning of the year, that we'd learn how to worship you in life. That whatever we're doing, that we would do it wholeheartedly, that we do it with excellence, that we would do it unto the Lord. And God, I just thank you for these people. They're worshipers and they're a blessing and we love them and they're easy to like and they're fun to lead. And God, I thank you that I get to shepherd this flock because I love them with all my heart. And God, I feel really, really blessed to be surrounded with these kind of people who are doing this kind of supernatural life. And it's really fun to see generations and legacies built here in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.